Royal Ravens and Satan's Shoes, when trademarks get controversial. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cartmel's In Conversation. I'm Lara Elder, and I'm pleased to be joined once again by my colleagues Ali and Will from our trademarks team. On today's episode, we're going to discuss two cases which, while rather different in flavour, share both a sporting theme and an element of controversy. First up, we have a UK case involving esports brand Royal Ravens, which had a run-in with Her Majesty the Queen. And after that, we'll talk about a case I suspect many of you might have read something about in the news recently involving a pair of so-called Satan's shoes. We all watched the drama unfold last year as uh, Prince Harry and Meghan filed trademark applications for Sussex Royal, only to withdraw them when they then met with multiple objections. Will, you may not be connected to the royal family despite your name, (laughs) but you have handled an interesting case recently involving some uh, royal ravens. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes, our clients weren't Harry or Meghan, um, but we filed in the UK for the wordmark London Royal Ravens. And we also filed UK and EU applications for a logo containing the same words. Uh, the application was on behalf of a London-based esports team for entertainment and competitions relating to professional video gaming and related events and goods. Right, and I think the the registry objected to the application. Is that right? Yes, they weren't happy, at least initially. Uh, at examination at the UK IPO, both the word mark and the logo were objected to on the grounds that because the marks contained the word royal, overall, they would be likely to lead an average consumer of those goods and services to think that the applicant enjoys royal patronage or authorization, and therefore the mark could not be registered unless consent was given by Her Majesty the Queen. So I thought, great, I hope we have to arrange a meeting. <laughs> pretty pretty exciting stuff as, uh, as things go with <laughs> trademark applications. So uh, having received that objection, what, what could be done? Was there anything you could do to overcome it? Well, at that point, we had two options. A, dispute the objection at the registry and disagree that the mark has any royal connection that would lead people to this belief. Or B, seek consent by or on behalf of Her Majesty. And we initially explored both options on the basis that if we could obtain consent, the registry's objection would fall away. Or if we could successfully dispute the registry's objection, then consent, of course, would be unnecessary. So uh, getting royal consent, that that sounds like quite a big deal. How how does one go about that? (laughs) I rang Buckingham Palace. Uh, (laughs) Can you put me straight through to the Queen, please? Uh, I'm sorry it's late, Uh, but she was probably too busy at the time playing esports to speak with me. But, um, <laughs> Most likely. I, actually, I'll come back to that point because that's almost the sort of thing that we said to the registry, but sadly it wasn't quite as dramatic as that. Um, we wrote to the Lord Chamberlain, who is the senior officer of the Royal Household at Buckingham Palace, and requested consent. But he replied saying that permission could not be granted without seeing evidence of consent to use from the Royal Names Team, which is a UK cabinet office. So any hopes of meeting the Queen now were, were fading at this point. Uh, we contacted the UK government department who said that to be issued a non-objection, our client would need to demonstrate evidence of a strong connection to the title. And there's guidance of how these quite strict standards are applied and the information required, such as why the name is being sought, a history of the applicant, future plans, details of the company's structure, as well as its accounts. 
So it was quite clear that a lot of material would be required for something that's only sparingly granted. And ultimately, we still questioned really whether this was applicable here, whether this really was a, a royal title at all. Yeah, so uh, that's that's interesting. It's got a lot, quite a lot of hurdles to jump through there. Mm. I've never also heard of the Royal Names Team at UK Cabinet <laughs> Office. You yeah, I'm not sure how you I'm not sure how you get a job there, but um, <laughs> sounds sounds an interesting one. <laughs> so, uh, what did you do next? Were you also were you also I think you mentioned you were also disputing the registry's objection that it should stick in the first place. That's right. We sort of attacked down both flanks, really, and submitted uh, written arguments to the registry, giving reasons for why we believe that the mark would not lead the average consumer to believe that the applicant enjoys royal patronage. And our arguments were on two main areas, really. One, the mark itself, and two, the context. So for the mark, we pointed to the structure with royal in the middle, unlike, say, Royal Mail or Royal Navy or Royal Bank of Scotland, and that really it was being used as a laudatory term alongside ravens, rather than suggesting that the mark had any royal connection. Uh, we gave examples as well as of a large number of UK registrations for marks containing royal. And we took issue with the registry's view that ravens were associated with the Tower of London, and therefore the crown jewels, and therefore the royal family. We felt that was uh, tenuous and quite a few leaps to make that required prior knowledge. So that was one one area. The second area was the context, and we communicated how the brand is used and said that consumers of esports goods and services would not feel, just because the word royal is included, that the team itself is endorsed by the royal family. And the nature of the goods and services were just not typical of those associated with the royal family, given that they were in relation to esports and gaming, which goes back to my comment earlier, really, that you can't envisage Her Majesty being involved here. Um, whereas royal warrants, for instance, are granted to companies that provide luxury goods to the royal household with royal patronage usually applied to charities. Um, whereas in relation to sports of any kind, and especially team games, the royal family are likely to to remain neutral, at least officially. Uh, yeah, well, I, I was just thinking I, would, I wouldn't put it past some of the, the more feisty members of the royal family to have a strong view about esports, but uh, but I take your point. So in that sense, this is quite different to the the issue Prince Harry and Meghan faced with their plan to register Sussex Royal and have a, a merchandising business around that, which obviously was clearly all about exploiting their, their former royal connections. Yes, they didn't have friends in high places, as it turned out, perhaps. <laughs> Ironic. Um, yeah, exactly. But uh, no, after, after a bit of back and forth with the registry, there was a hearing where the office agreed that it would be very unusual for these goods relating to esports and the name of a sporting team to be granted royal authorization and that it would be like unlikely that these consumers would see the mark and think royal patronage. And so with some small tweaks to the specification, the mark was accepted for publication. Which was a, a great result for, for the client. Um, I think you mentioned at the beginning that you'd also uh, you'd also sought to register the the same mark London Royal Ravens in the EU. Uh, what what happened with that application? Yes, well remembered. Uh, it was not objected to at examination by the EU IPO. It was published there without a word, in fact. And although there are similar sorts of grounds under the EU trademark regulation, which mentions emblems. It's not quite as narrow as the wording of UK legislation, which refers even to words or letters which lead people to think that the applicant has royal patronage. So it's a quirky and um, uncommon objection of ours that applies in the UK. Oh, it's interesting to, to note the difference there. So uh, you're more likely to sneak your royal marks through at the <laughs> EU IPO um, than, than you are in the UK. Yes, and following Brexit, 
and we couldn't do a piece without mentioning it, of course, Lara. <laughs> of course. Uh, a, large, a large number of EU marks have now been cloned onto the UK register. And that was an option we had, apply for the word mark in the EU. And if it registers in time, it would come onto the UK register. But we're pleased that the UK marks have passed UK national examination. We can take some comfort from that. Uh, but it will be interesting to see if any of these originally EU registered marks will be challenged in the UK on these sorts of grounds in the future. Indeed. Well, thank you very much, Will. A really interesting and peculiarly British case. Moving uh, seamlessly on now from esports uh, to sports shoes and more specifically Nike trainers, but not as you or I might normally wear them. I think that's fair to say, right, Ali? Yes, that's that's right. Uh, Nike has made headlines again uh, recently with regards to a new version of its Nike Air Max 97 trainers. I can't say I own a pair myself, uh, but Nike is always coming out with new trainers uh, with famous collaborations, so it's not surprising to see them in the news. However, this shoe release was a bit different uh, because Nike didn't even know it was happening and they they weren't actually involved in creating these new Nike trainers. The the shoes were released by Brooklyn art collective Mischief in collaboration with American rapper Lil Nas uh, and was intended to be a provocative art piece at highlighting the absurdity of cult status, collaboration culture practices by uh, some big brands like Nike, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, The shoes were real Nike Air Max 97 trainers uh, with the Nike swoosh However, they had been modified with various inscriptions, including an inverted cross, a pentagram uh, on the front, and the verse Luke 1918, sorry, 1018, uh, and quite interestingly, a a drop of real human blood in the signature Nike red ink air bubble sole. Wow, so that that really is pushing the boat out with controversial... uh... Modifications. Actually, I read, I was reading somewhere that it was um, a drop of blood from, or each shoe contained a drop of blood from an employee of Mischief, which, you know, I don't know whether they realised what they were signing up to when they joined the collective. Yeah, not quite the usual blood drive, is it? No. <laughs> um, yeah, so the, the, these shoes were, as you said before, um, named Satan Shoes, and exactly. 666 pairs were released and could have been yours or mine for just over a thousand US dollars. However, they all apparently sold out in less than a minute. That's incredible. Yeah. So understandably, um, in this situation, Nike was pretty annoyed um, as they didn't actually have anything to do with it. They filed a claim at the US District Court for the, uh, for the Eastern District of New York claiming that Mischief altered these shoes without Nike's authorization and that the sale of the shoes without its consent constitutes trademark infringement against its US trademark rights in the Nike swoosh and its word mark. Right. So, I mean, I suppose this is a good point to, to remind everyone listening that we're, we're neither Ali nor I are US qualified lawyers. But I think this this case does raise some pretty interesting questions that are common to trademark law in in many jurisdictions, including including the UK and EU. And also, um, and we can come to talk about this a little bit later, but also some broader questions about litigation strategy and the impact, and, and particularly this this uh, day and age of social media, what, what sorts of things can happen. So maybe maybe starting off, we could talk a little bit about some of the trademark aspects of the case. I mean, I guess the first question really is, 
so we've said mischief they're they're an art collective they're doing something that's obviously meant to be a bit controversial a bit of a a statement. Yeah, so looking at the UK trademark law specifically, if it were decided in, in the UK, a business infringes a registered trademark if he uses in the course of trade a sign which is identical with a trademark in relation to goods and services which are also identical or for similar goods and services and a mm-hmm. similar mark but where there's a likelihood of confusion. If an owner has a reputation, like a Nike in this case, they have a broader scope of rights in preventing the use of its trademark for different goods, uh, where that takes unfair advantage of their reputation or results in some detrimental effect to their reputation. Uh, or like tarn- tarnishing, as the brand. Americans call it, I think, tarnishing. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So a kind of a, something relevant in this case is that there is an exception uh, called it there, it's referred to as the exhaustion of rights. So where a registered trademark isn't infringed, if the trademark owner has already sold those goods or put those goods on the market in the European area uh, with the trademark attached, uh, with its consent, when those products have already been sold. Right, because we're talking here really about genuine Nike trainers that Mischief presumably bought 666 pairs of them. Um, and then, But then they, they modified them. Does that make a difference to that principle of exhausting the trademark rights? What Nike was concerned with is that they'd modified these sneakers to a degree that they almost lost control of, of the product. And what they claimed is that there was potentially safety risks or safety concerns which might result in those tra- those trainers being modified in that mm-hmm. way. And th- this kind of comes under the exception of, of the exhaustion of rights where the product has been, the condition of the products has been changed or, or impaired after they've put on the market, but then continue to be sold and associated with that trademark brand. Yeah, so if something's if something's been done to the genuine item when they're being sold on and on that thing that's been done is somehow affecting the brand that the brand has a negative impact for example as in this case that gives the brand owner a kind of fresh opportunity a legitimate reason to to prevent their onward sale so i mean we we're not going to know i mean we're not going to know how this case plays out unfortunately because they they've settled haven't they um i guess one of the things that speculating here that mischief might have tried to run if the case had progressed is some kind of parody defense which isn't that that's not actually a, a defense that's available in um english law or, or there there are sort of equivalent provisions which say that you're not infringing a trademark if you're making honest use which doesn't affect the essential functions um but i suppose that goes to the wider question here really about the sort of pr element of all of this and what mischief was trying to do and what the impact of, of Nike suing was. I mean, do you have some thoughts to share on that, Ali? Yeah, so it was quite interesting what Nike asked to get as, as a remedy by mm. bringing this, this trademark action. You know, what, what was their motivation in, in, in taking action in this particular instance? What they actually did obtain was a temporary restraining order before, before they did settle the case. Uh, that What they got was that they is actually barring mischief from fulfilling any further orders of the shoes on right. which we know that they had actually already sold all of them bar yeah, one in a minute <laughs> in, in a minute exactly uh so that isn't as successful in, in that remedy uh however they have also they also asked for a full refund of a voluntary recall of the product so enabling all purchasers who are potentially confused by the product 
to obtain a refund if they wanted to, but also if there were any defects, issues or, or health concerns that arose by the modification of the products, which is what the concern is, is with exhaustion of rights, that they should have be, be able to obtain a full refund. And they couldn't take that claim to Nike, given that they weren't uh, involved with the product. So it's a quite, I found that quite interesting in, as a as a remedy and and what value that could have. Of course, Nike would ideally want to remove all of these products from circulation. They they wouldn't want them to exist. I'm thinking you, you you're somebody who's who probably if you've bought one of these, been poised in that that, that one minute to buy one of the hotly awaited 666 pairs of trainers from from Mischief. You probably know full well what you're doing. And I can't imagine many of those uh, 666 buyers are going to be taking up the offer of a refund of their $1,000 when presumably the, the onward resale rights now are going to be vastly in excess of that with all the publicity that's been in the case. Yeah, ex- exactly. So the value in this product is the ability to resell it for, for more money, but it's also the status symbol. So that the cool factor of owning one of just 666 pairs sold, this unique shoe. Um, that and, is, and of course, the, the value of the shoes has increased a lot with the, the publicity campaign and the fact that Nike has sued based on this issue that had that as mischief said, themselves after settlement when questioned, they said that this has dramatically amplified the message and controversy that they were hoping to achieve by this artistic piece. So so that's really interesting. So the, the types of consumers in this instance, I I doubt they're they're the types of people who are gonna take Nike up on on the on the refund or mischief up on the refund. Uh, but it also I think it's one of those perils of of fame and a famous mark where, as we see all the time, knockoffs, imitations, consumers are less concerned as to the genuineness of the product, but more about what having a product with that logo or with that brand has and the value that that creates. And that's, that's of course, exactly Mischief's game in all of this, I think, isn't it, in sending up that kind of consumerism, the allegiance to a brand. I mean, it's interesting that they chose Satan's shoes as a way to do this and and actually I, I, we haven't mentioned it yet but that mischief have done a number of of stunts of this nature and I think a year or two ago they did something very similar with with a pair of Jesus shoes which were also Nike trainers that had been modified and I mean it struck me what what's going on here is mischief is precisely sending up brands like Nike that are so famous that they're tendency to have collaborations with celebrities to build up hype around their new products it struck me that you've even got that play on symbols you've got the symbol of christianity they had a a crucifix attached to their jesus shoes and and then you've got the sort of pentagram devil's token attached to the the satan shoes um and then of course you've got the nike swoosh yeah, it's it's almost as though they they targeted Nike specifically for that. Not not only is Nike known for for collaborations uh, with famous people and musicians as well, but it's it's a big band, big big brand. It's openly compared them to a well known religious symbol and and how the power of a brand can be just as big as as you say the the cross or the crucifix. I mean, it's it's kind of interesting. It's clear to me that there was there was plenty of weight behind the the lawsuit that. Nike filed because there was quite a lot of confusion out there in the marketplace, wasn't there? I think. Yeah, there was. So that's 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 a 
the large issue with this type of infringement is that the damage has already been done uh, before Nike had the opportunity to, mm. to stop it and and even with a, an injunction to re reduce the sale or, or obtain a refund, um, that damage has already been done. So in this case, I think why Nike pushed to sue as opposed to a few months ago when the Jesus shoe was released, uh, also again, it was a Nike shoe. But in this situation, there was genuine confusion. Uh, it was the huge amount of social media hype that that occurred very quickly, and following the release. So I think there was yeah, there was I mean, numerous tweets and social media calling people to boycott Nike yeah. um, in response to the the launch. Uh, various religious and conservative groups took offence, uh, and I think I think Nike would have been seriously worried about the association uh, misleading association with endorsing Satanism or uh, this kind of dramatic view. Yeah, so I mean, maybe maybe Nike didn't have much option but to sue in this case. It was a it was a strong statement from them, but they I guess they wanted to get the message out there very quickly and very clearly that that these had nothing to do with these shoes had nothing to do with them as a company for all the reasons you're saying. I mean, if you had to say who who won this dispute, I'm not sure. <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, that's a that's a difficult one. Um, yeah, I, I, I have. I feel that mischief did in this case. They they got what they wanted. They almost planned it this way, knowing that this mm -hmm. is how brand owners react, and they have very little limited options to to react in this situation. And maybe maybe they were hoping for it from the Jesus shoe, and they they didn't get it. So so this is one step uh, one step more controversial. <laughs> I think I think they've found the line. Yeah, <laughs> that, I think they, they that have. they crossed. Yeah. So it's it's interesting that the public perception as well. Around trademark infringement is is quite a challenge for for brand owners, um, and that decision it's quite a strategic decision when how you approach this, whether you fight the fire and and take legal action and or uh, just let it blow over and and almost kind of either ignore it or or address it, address it quite simply. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a real it's a really good example of how of the power of social media in these contexts now and just how instant and how global it is and so even if as a, a famous brand owner even if you've got a strong claim that PR aspect always has to be factored into litigation decisions in a way that it perhaps just didn't so much in the past um, and sometimes going in too hard can end up doing doing the brand more harm than good. Yeah absolutely I think I think brand owners need to almost be equally as creative and fast with dealing with infringement as the public are with with dealing with it there are some really good examples of of companies that have have dealt with this quite well and almost turned it into a positive which which can be very difficult to do and, and probably in in this particular instance might not have been possible but uh, for example, KFC, um, they released a campaign back in 2019 I'm, I'm not sure if, if you saw it but uh, there's quite a lot of uh, restaurants, fried chicken restaurants that kind of imitate or or play off their their brand, mm -hmm. uh, and they released a campaign uh, with images of all of those stores uh, and a TV advertisement as well, um, saying, "Hey, we're we're flattered that you that you're trying to imitate <laughs> us," um, and almost poking fun at those businesses attempting to try and be like KFC and say, "Oh well." Good work, good try, good luck trying, but you can't beat us almost. So, so that was quite quite clever on their part. So dealing with it in a in a PR way, exactly. Well, thanks very much, Ali, and, and also Will. Um, I think that's 
all we've got time for today. It's been great talking to you both. And, and thanks to you all, of course, our listeners for tuning in for, for this uh, episode of Cartmels in Conversation. We'll be back soon. Mm-hmm.